0: Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers of big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. I'm going to start this week with a story I used for last week's episode before realising it was published a day too late to be used for last week's episode. Last week's episode was articles from the 20th to 26th of August, and this article was published on the 27th, so that's why I'm including it in this week's episode. If you've already heard it, then you can skip ahead to 7 minutes 23. If you haven't, then here it is. It's actually one of the big stories of the week. A new US trade agreement with Mexico. This is in the Telegraph. Donald Trump has announced that America and Mexico had agreed terms for a new trade deal, moving a step closer to delivering his campaign prompts of renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement. The US president said he hoped the deal would replace NAFTA, but declared that he was ditching the old name because it had bad connotations for America, which he believes has suffered under the original terms. Mr. Trump challenged Canada, the third signatory to NAFTA, to come back to the negotiating table and suggested that the country could be hit with tariffs on its car exports unless it agrees to talk in good faith. The development is a significant step towards the Trump administration's ambition to renegotiate NAFTA, a 24-year-old trade agreement between America, Canada, and Mexico. However, much remains to be achieved. with it unclear if Mexico would sign a deal that did not include Canada. The US Congress also has to approve whatever Mr. Trump's negotiating team is able to secure. Mr. Trump was a fierce critic of NAFTA during his successful 2016 presidential campaign, blaming it for allowing US manufacturers to relocate over the border into Mexico and hurting American workers in the process. Negotiations about changes have been going on for a year, including tens of thousands of hours of talks in seven separate rounds. Canada stepped away from the negotiating table weeks ago, leaving just America and Mexico. On Monday, Mr. Trump and Enrique Piña Nieto, the Mexican president, announced that they had reached an understanding about how to change their trade relationship. In a corporate put on speakerphone in the Oval Office so the reporters could listen in, both men thanked each other and said they believed both U.S. and Mexican workers would benefit from the changes. Mr. Trump said the new terms were incredible and much more fair than those in NAFTA. He also said he wanted the deal to be called the United States-Mexico Trade Agreement, ditching the original name. We'll get rid of the name NAFTA. It has a bad connotation because the United States was hurt very badly by NAFTA, the US President said. Mr. Trump said he would terminate NAFTA once the new agreements have been secured. Details of the deal were still emerging on Monday. It reportedly changed the percentage of a car that needed to be made in America or Mexico to not be hit by a tariff when it was sold across the border. Rules that protect workers have also been strengthened. America is now hoping Canada agrees to return to talks. US officials and the Mexican president both said they hope Canada will sign up to the new US-Mexico deal, making it a three-way agreement. Whatever is agreed by negotiators must be sent to the US Congress for ratification. That process will not reach a conclusion until after the November midterm elections, at which point the Democrats could hold the House of Representatives. Free trade is not fair trade. There's a difference. Free trade means freedom for corporations to exploit those in the poorest parts of the world, manufacturing their products for the lowest possible pay. And as in America's case, the corporations can move their manufacturing to Mexico and thus pay their workers less to manufacture the products and thus sell the products in the developed world, developed economically, not morally that is, for a much higher price, meaning both those manufacturing and purchasing are exploited. Those purchasing are exploited by paying more than they should have to pay, and thus earn more. At risk of going into debt for buying crap from corporations which in many cases causes harm to the consumer and benefits the elite's agenda the more debt the closer the consumers get to the hunger game society which i talk about in episode four and i'm all for fairer trade agreements so there's fair pay and fair price but what we're seeing with this new trade deal with this story is not about that that's the where it's sold. As ever, this has all been long planned. Bill Clinton talked in 1994 about a huge free trade zone stretching from Alaska to Argentina. It's all part of building the structure of world government control through political union. The World Trade Organization, created in 1995, is central to countries dropping trade barriers and tariffs, thus allowing corporations to exploit in the way I've just mentioned. Trade deals are designed in the interests of corporations and the elite. The corporations benefit, as I've already said, and the elite who own the giant corporations benefit not least because they can evolve trade deals into political unions if they haven't already for each particular area of the world. Under NAFTA, through what's known as the Investor State Dispute Settlement, corporations can take governments to court if those governments have laws. Corporations feel could affect profits, which is exactly the same as TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, out of the European Union and North America and Trump says he's going to drop the name NAFTA with this new trade agreement but whatever they decide to call the new investor state dispute settlement if they didn't keep that then be the same thing just explained in a different way with a different name. I talked in episode 24 about the structure of control and how the few control the money and one of the organisations I mentioned was the Council on Foreign Relations which is fundamentally involved with NAFTA as it is the European Union because they are all elite organisations. NAFTA is designed to be evolved into a union just like the European Union which itself was created as a free trade zone originally before evolving into a full-on super state dictatorship of Europe. There is even a name for the planned currency of the North American Union which is the Amero. Robert Pasteur who is a Professor of International Relations and Founder and Director of the Center for North American Studies at American University and a former Vice-Chair of the Council on Foreign Relations Task Force on the Future of North America which issued a report called Building a North American Community in May 2005 has talked about the Amero. All this business now about free trade zone with North America and Mexico and Canada is just a stepping stone to the North American Union which will be just as much a problem for Americans as the European Union is for people in Europe. It's exactly the same, it's just a different part of the world. Donald Trump is a man of the elite, for the elite, and his policies, as is always the case for a president, are driven by the elite. He's not going against the establishment as people thought he would during election time. He's an extension of the establishment and corporate world. Trump has made his fortune in casinos, corporations exploiting the people and getting them more into debt. He's made his fortune serving corporate interests and revisionist Zionist interests. And now he's doing exactly the same in government. The next subject this week is small businesses. This is in the Daily Mail. Bailiffs sent to more than 81,000 firms for failing to pay business rates. Bailiffs have been sent into more than 81,000 companies that have struggled to pay their business rates in the first year since a controversial overhaul of the system, according to new figures. An investigation by ratings advisor Altus Group has found that bailiffs were sent to 222 premises across England every day in 2017 to 2018 because of business rate arrears. They were given power to enter properties, seize goods, and sell them at public auction in order to settle their debts. The figures follow a Freedom of Information request by Altus, which received details on how many business premises were referred to bailiffs from 264 English councils covering 1.6 million properties out of 1.9 million liable for rates. Using the data provided, it estimated that bailiffs were sent to 81,317 premises over the year, and calculated that 6.53% of firms liable for rates nearly 1 in every 15 commercial properties with a bill faced having their goods seized up from 6% the year before. The rates revaluation in April 2017 left millions of businesses facing crippling tax hikes and forced many retailers and pubs out of business as its saw properties revalued for the first time in seven years. Robert Hayton, head of UK business rates at Alta, said councils are taking enforcement action much earlier. Robert Hayton, head of UK business rates at Altus, said councils are taking enforcement action much earlier, since their finances became more aligned to business rates income. He added, this sometimes leads to companies with manifestly incorrect demands, receiving summonses and facing enforcement action. The problem is also exacerbated by understaffing within some councils and the inordinate delays that this creates in dealing with ratepayers. The research discovered that Birmingham City Council referred the most premises to bailiffs over the year at 3,864 although this was down from 4,414 in 2016 to 2017. Manchester City Council referred 2,267 business premises to bailiffs, the second highest number of instructions and up 38% from 1,932 in 2016 to 2017. Liverpool, Coventry, Hounslow and Brent Councils all made more than 1,000 referrals to bailiffs according to the data. Birmingham, Manchester. Are among a small number of councils that currently retain 100% of business rates as part of a government pilot. More widely, the government is planning to increase the share kept by local authorities across England from 50% to 75% in 2020. A government spokesman said it is important that councils are proportionate in enforcement and use bailiffs only as a last resort. We are introducing over £10 billion worth of business rate support for 2023. They want to get rid of business. I've said it various times before and this is another step towards that goal. This is why giant corporations like Amazon and Starbucks who pay hardly any tax don't get any punishment while businesses are visited by bailiffs. If you're serving the elite's agenda, like corporations are, you're taken care of and you get the support you need because the elite needs you for their agenda. And this is not to mention, as I did earlier, the corporations power through trade deals like TTIP and ISDS and NAFTA, trade deals through political unions benefiting corporations. Political unions are also a means through which regulation after regulation after regulation, red tape after red tape after red tape, can be brought into law, which makes it harder and harder for small businesses to survive. This targeting of businesses, of course, leads to the Hunger Games Society as businesses disappear, and the people who run them and work in them are without a job, and when all business is gone, then everyone owning or working in the business is in that position. And all that's left for people in the way of employment is corporations because even public service jobs are designed to be corporatised. As I've said before, this is what we're seeing with the NHS, rail travel and law enforcement, and even taxi travel is going this way with Uber now. One of the main reasons for Uber is to track where everybody's going and thus deny people access to the computer system recognises as a dissident of authority. Corporatisation is happening because the corporations are, in many cases, elite-owned and they're vehicles for introducing the elite's agenda in their particular category of commerce. Also it allows for easier control, regulation and policing as with Uber for example. The corporations come in, take over and re-image their particular category of commerce and area of society. So Uber for example is designed and it's already started to re-image taxi travel in a way that makes it easier for control, regulation and policing to suit authority and in a way that's in line with the elite's agenda. Another part of the plan is for commerce to move online Almost exclusively, if not exclusively, to make control and policing even easier. This is where monopoly monsters like Amazon come in. I mean, what doesn't Amazon sell now? The idea is to move to a point of monopoly, and then you can dictate from a central point not only access, but also even what books are published. Amazon began as a book publisher, and now it's refusing to publish certain books. Facebook and Google are the same. Get a monopoly, and then you can control and police from a central point bring everyone together on a platform under the guise of social media and being able to communicate with your friends and having your own space to say whatever you like. Myspace was an earlier attempt at this, it was big in America in the early to late 2000s but it didn't really take off in Europe and then it eventually died out in America but by then Facebook was around. So the idea is to get people onto a platform under the guise of social media and communication and then using that monopoly to stop people seeing certain information, to censor information. To use algorithms to suppress information. Both Facebook and Google are doing all these things. Facebook and Twitter have a shadow banning, meaning people can post, but only a certain number of that person's followers are actually going to see the post. YouTube, owned by Google, is doing the same with their virtual monopoly on video sharing, as well as outright banning channels with no explanations and deleting all the videos, whether or not the user has copies of the videos or not. They don't care, they're monsters. They say you've broken the community guidelines when those guidelines are as deliberately as vague as possible so they can be applied to as wide a range of situations as possible. They play off of political correctness. If you've got a video making legitimate comment and asking legitimate questions about gender or migration, you could find the video deleted because it doesn't comply with the guidelines. Political correctness is a tool to get people either to silence themselves because they don't want to offend and they think being politically correct is a good thing. It's not. Are there certain subject areas political correctness should cover? Yes, disability is one of them. Why would anyone want to discriminate against someone with disability? However, there's other subject areas like transgender, fluid gender, migration and others which should be challenged and questioned and talked about in a very politically incorrect way because that's the only way a genuine debate on these subjects is going to be conducted. So political correctness is either about people censoring themselves or people being censored, not least, not least, in the way I'm talking about now with social media. I talk about this more in episode 27. So the giant corporations are there to introduce the elites agenda and that's another reason why the plan is to get rid of business, to get rid of challenge to the elites agenda, leaving only the corporations introducing the elites agenda. Next subject this week is energy drinks. This is in Guardian. Government to ban energy drink sales to children in England. Ministers will ban the sale of Red Bull, Monster Energy and other energy drinks to children in England amid growing concern about the impact the high caffeine, high sugar drinks are having on young people's health. A consultation on how to implement the proposed ban will be unveiled on Thursday with Downing Street indicating that the principal question to be determined is whether the purchasing restrictions will apply at the age of 16 or 18. Theresa May said the consultation was linked to the government's childhood obesity strategy and said it was necessary to examine the consumption of energy drinks, often because they are sold at cheaper prices than their soft drinks. The principal justification for the ban is the high level of caffeine in the energy drinks, which has been linked to a string of health problems for children including head and stomach aches as well as hyperactivity and sleep problems. A 250ml can of Red Bull contains about 18mg of caffeine, roughly the same as a similarly sized cup of coffee but three times the level of Coca-Cola. Monster Energy, which is often sold in larger cans of 500ml contains 160mg of caffeine. Energy drinks often also have higher levels of sugar than soft drinks. According to government figures, sugar and energy drinks have 60% more calories and 65% more sugar than normal soft drinks and sugar is one of the largest causes of obesity. Jamie Oliver, the celebrity chef and food health campaigner, said he welcomed the prospect of a ban on energy drink sales because too many children are regularly using them to replace breakfast and teachers from across the country have told me how their lessons are disrupted because of these drinks packed with stimulants, says Oliver. Some major retailers already banned sales of energy drinks to youngsters but cheap prices in other outlets mean that consumption by children in the UK is estimated by ministers to be 50% ahead of other countries in Europe. Two thirds of children aged 10 to 17 and a quarter of 6 to 9 year olds consume energy drinks, according to the government announcement. Steve Bryan, the Public Health Minister, complained that in some outlets it is possible to buy four 250ml cans of energy drink for one pound. The 12 week consultation proposes that a ban would apply to drinks that contain more than 150 milligrams of caffeine per liter. A Downing Street source added that introducing a ban was all but certain, saying it's a question not of whether we do it, but how. The move is the latest step in an increasingly interventionist approach being pursued by the Conservatives in relation to childhood obesity and health. When he was the Chancellor, George Osborne introduced a tax on sugary drinks. Drink brands such as Red Bull, Relentless, Monster Energy, and Rockstar have become increasingly popular. Children and teenagers treat more than Adults, even though industry labelling guidelines state that any soft drink with more than 150 milligrams of caffeine per liter must carry a warning about its content and state that it is not recommended for children. Well, that wouldn't stop kids drinking it, though, in many cases. The compulsory health warnings read, high caffeine content not recommended for children or pregnant or breastfeeding women or persons sensitive to caffeine. Russell Viner, president of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, said there is no evidence that energy drinks have any nutritional value in replacing the diet of children and young people. That's why we're pleased to see the government take action on this and other measures to tackle childhood obesity and improve children's health. The article goes on. The proposed ban only applies to England, but Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland can all follow suit if their administration's wish. In March, several major supermarket chains announced that they would ban the sale of energy drinks to children under 16. The Teachers Union N-E-S-E-W-T, called last year for the sale of the drinks to under 16 to be banned by all retailers. Its national official for education, Darren Northcott, described the beverages as legal highs that help to fuel bad behaviour in schools. Mintel consumer data starts at the age of 16, with the biggest official UK market for energy drinks being boys aged 16 to 24, with 63% consuming them compared with 58% of girls. But according to the European Food Safety Authority research, two-thirds of 10 to 16-year-olds regularly consume energy drinks along with 18% of three to 10 year olds. Well, I've talked before about additives in food and drink like aspartame, the worst one, also called adventame and NutraSweet, and others like sucralose and acesal K. Aspartame is an excitotoxin or neurotoxin. They excite brain cells and over a period of time, destroy them and stop the brain working to full capacity. It's interesting that one of the energy drinks is called monster, because that more or less sums it up. I see all this discussion about energy drinks and diet drinks like Diet Coke in the mainstream and it's always focused on sugar. And there should be a focus on the effects of sugar because it's responsible for various health problems. But artificial sweeteners are never mentioned, it's always sugar. If you want to control and manipulate the population in an attempt to ensure as little challenge to your agenda as possible, then you have to engineer methods of suppressing and diverting the population and that's where additives, not necessarily every additive, but additives of food and drink come in. Another manipulation, like GM food, which I talk about in episode 26. That's where pharmaceutical medicine comes in, which I talk about in episode 17. In terms of diversion, that's where cheap entertainment comes in, like celebrity juice and Big Brother. That's where sport comes in. I like sport myself, but if it's the focus of our attention, excluding everything else rather than being in our peripheral vision, while our focus is on what's going on, then we're missing what's going on and it continues unchallenged. This is where irrelevant celebrity news comes in, like who War what, at which awards show. This is where technology comes in, and most recently in terms of diversions. Also, this is where Donald Trump comes in, the so-called most powerful man in the world. What? The man-child Trump. Netanyahu who's more powerful than Trump, and Netanyahu is nowhere near the most powerful man in the world. And while people are focused on Trump, in Silicon Valley they have the greatest concentration of surveillance and censorship power the world has ever seen through Facebook, Twitter, Google and YouTube, owned by Google, which I talk about in episode 27. And they also had through Silicon Valley, the transhuman technological agenda being rolled out, which is the end of humanity as we know it, which I talk about in episodes 8 and 11. These are all methods of either or both dumbing down in the population and diverging their attention. The point that he's making is that while the effects of energy drinks and crap in food and drink may not be known publicly, and will definitely not be known by those making the drinks. They'll just know what they're told. They just want to do their job and go home. It will be known at ownership level of some of these corporations. Coca-Cola, certainly, and the negative effects are intended. That's the point people miss. People say, obviously there's nothing wrong with it, otherwise they wouldn't be allowed to sell it. Well, how does Coca-Cola sell its drinks then? What about smart meters? What about 5G? Both of which, by the way, are not tested before they're unleashed on the public. I talk about smart meters in episodes 1 and 17, and I talk about 5G in episodes 12 and 20, as well as other episodes. Corporate lobbying and official science is all you need to get these abominations for health into the public arena. And claiming you're doing it to tackle global warming helps as well. As in the case of smart meters, even though human-caused global warming, climate change is a massive hoax to justify an enormous transformation of society. I talk about climate change in episodes 18 and 29. The rubbish in food and drink contributes to health problems and then the kids go to the doctor, who won't necessarily always connect the energy drink to the ill health, unless the kid is drinking a load of energy drinks. And the doctor will prescribe the kids pharmaceutical medicine, which has its own potential negative health effects. When you look at mainstream healing it's a joke, and it would be funny if it wasn't real. You've got cancer, for example, And the two most used methods of curing cancer are chemotherapy which kills cells regardless of whether they're a cancer cell or a healthy cell. And I know there's more targeted versions now but there's still a risk of killing healthy cells. And radiotherapy which is radiation and what's one of the causes of cancer? Radiation. It's a joke but unfortunately it's also true. And despite all the money donated and raised for cancer research and all the research for cures for cancer over decades, the two most used ways of curing cancer one of them is to kill cells and the other one is a cause of cancer does anyone else think that's not just a little bit suspect the truth is the healing the elite and certain gophers get is much better than the public get. i mean we know that but more than that in the hidden in the shadows their healing knowledge and knowledge of the body and how it works never mind actual medicine and technology is far beyond anything seen in the public arena but when suppression and depopulation is your goal, you want to keep that knowledge and technology away from the target population. Also, when you have access to advanced healing and technology, you have to keep it secret because if the public knew about it, then people are going to ask, where is does it come from and how does it work? And now people are asking questions you don't want them to ask because you want to keep them in a state of limited perception and possibility. So you hide the healing knowledge, medicine, and technology away from the population thus aiding suppression and depopulation and ensuring a limited perception of the possible and that's essential if you want to control and manipulate that population it doesn't matter that people suffer and die as a result of that because you have no empathy for the victims of your actions as long as human society is best placed to advance your agenda that's all that matters that's the way the elite see the population because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. The next subject this week is transgenderism. This is in the Telegraph. Brown University in row with transgender activists over it claims gender dysphoria is spreading among children. An Ivy League college is embroiled in a row with trans activists over an article which suggested gender dysphoria was spreading among children. Brown University has removed research from its website which hypothesised that teenagers who came out as transgender were more likely to have friends who were transitioning and were influenced by YouTube videos and social media. Why remove it? That's true. Academics accused the university of bowing to pressure from activists after it removed a news article linked to Lisa Linton's research. A tweet promoting the paper has also been deleted. The research concluded that social and peer contagion was a plausible explanation of cluster outbreaks in a high number of cases where the majority of children in a friendship group became transgender identified. Well, of course, a statement from Bess H. Marcus, Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health, said the concerns of a methodology had prompted the removal, adding that members of the university had also complained. Triggered, were they? The score of public health is served sure from brand community members expressing concerns that the conclusions of the study could be used to discredit efforts to support transgender youth and invalidate the perspectives of members of the transgender community, said Bess H. Marcus. The announcement was made after critics raised concerns about the political stance of the two hundred and fifty six parents who participated in the study entitled Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria in Adolescents and Young Adults. They had been sourced from online discussion groups including British site transgender trend and US site Fourth Wave Now. Comments on the article which was published in journal PLOS One describe the size of politically bent websites which hold a variety of anti LGBT stances common to the religious right. Well is it anti LGBT or are they just asking legitimate questions and making a legitimate comment? Because there's a difference on Twitter transgender trend said desperate attempts to undermine Lisa Littman's important ROGD study include defamation of the websites where parents were recruited including the ridiculous claim the transgender trend is far right and wants to criminalize medical transition. We are not and we don't. Dr. Littman's paper acknowledges that the interviewees might be more oppositional to transgender identified individuals but adds that survey questions indicated they had a similar level of support for the rights of transgender people as the rest of the population. But Susie Green, the CEO of British charity Mermaids, which supports young transgender people and their families, said the methodology of the study was completely flawed. The places they went to get these responses were very much anti-trans websites. They haven't talked to the young people themselves and the parents are sourced from gender-critical websites who do not believe that transgender children exist who think that children should be forced to accept their birth gender no matter how much damage that causes, she told The Telegraph. As a colleague, a clinician who works in this field has stated, it's like recruiting from a white supremacist website to demonstrate that black people are an inferior race, she added. Well, is it? Or is it just a website asking legitimate questions and making legitimate comments? Responding, Stephanie Davis, R.I., founder of Transgender Trends, said we are a left-leaning group of parents who would support their children no matter what the outcome. Academics and researchers criticised the decision to remove the study, as they should. James Caspian, a psychotherapist who specialised in gender identity for over a decade and who was fundraising for a legal case against Bath Spa University for blocking the research into people who decided to detransition last year, said, In a way, mine was censored in anticipation of being criticised. It would appear that this has been attacked after it's been done by people whose agenda it doesn't suit. Bath previously said it rejected his research on methodological, not ideological grounds. In a statement posted alongside Dr. Lipman's article, the journal said, We take all concerns raised about publications in the journal very seriously and are following up on these per our policy and guidelines. As part of our follow-up, we will seek further expert assessment on the study's methodology and analyses. We will provide a further update once we have completed our assessment and discussions. Well, of course I've talked about transgender a lot in pay-per-view including episodes eight and twenty six. In terms of what this article talks about, transgender people are influenced by propaganda and from various sources. That's what all this propaganda is about with kids now in school. If you can mould perception from an early age, you've got that person's perception for life unless someone or something intervenes causes that perception to change. That's why all this propaganda about transgender and fluid gender is happening now with kids at such a young age to be discussing these subjects with kids. It's not about the best time to discuss these issues with kids. Clearly not when it's being done so young. It's about installing a perception from the earliest possible age to have the best chance of that perception remaining in the kid's perception for life. Another reason for all this propaganda aimed at kids is because they're going to be the future generations in the world of the elite's agenda. So they want to start transgender and fluid gender as early as possible in the kids' perceptions. On the subject of future generations, I've talked before about epigenetics, which means that genetic, yes, of course, but also environmental and perceptual changes carry down generations. So what we're seeing now, especially in universities, not least in America, which is a mind control laboratory. People say the American culture's everywhere. No, it's not the American culture. It's that which has worked in America which is then exported all over the world. That's why so much of American culture is everywhere because it's not American culture, it's just that which has been shown to work in America. And because it has been shown to work, then it gets exported all over the world. And in America, but also this country and others, we're seeing young people needing trigger warnings as they call it, when they're about to come across material, they find challenging to hear or acknowledge. And they go off into hysterics when they hear someone saying things they don't like because they've been triggered. And as a result of that, we're seeing certain speakers banned or deplatformed, as they call it, and political correctness dictating what people can or can't say, and debate in universities, even though university is supposed to be about debate. But what we've got is this mentality being engineered into place. I've talked about one of the ways it's engineered in episode three. Because of epigenetics, you've got the creation of Generation Snowflake as it's become known. And then the next generation is born Generation Snowflake. And given that, do we not think it's at least possible that this tendency towards gender fluidity will not also be carried down the generations in this way? especially if that tendency is installed as a perception at such a young age it's worth considering as a possibility in terms of this story you've got political correctness limiting debate again which is what it's there to do political correctness is an elite scam to get the population to silence and censor itself the university bowed to the pressure of political correctness in a transgender lobby because political correctness massive proponents of which are the progressives, or regressives as I call them. They're the new tyranny. Progressives think they're rebels and trailblazers challenging the established order when they're just helping to bring in a new order that suits that which was ultimately behind the old established order. They're the new establishment, they just don't see it. When you're leading a revolution in inverted commas, it might be just a little bit of a good idea to find out who is gonna benefit. There were days I know it's hard to believe now, but there were days when students and young people marched for freedom of speech and genuinely protested against the establishment and what it was doing that they didn't like. And their protests had validity, not necessarily in every case, but there were protests then that had validity against the establishment. But now you've got young people protesting against freedom of speech and for that which suits the elite in their agenda. They're the new establishment, they're the new law with their political correctness, and if we don't stand up to it, and them, by speaking our truth as we see it, then we're going to live in the world of the elite's agenda not too long from now. There's an article here that follows on from that in the Telegraph. NSPCC in Mum's Net row after defending Girl Guide's transgender policy. The NSPCC has become embroiled in a row with Mumsnet users after defending the right of transgender girls to join the Girl Guides. The Children's Charity called off a planned live event about keeping children safe from abuse on Friday after users repeatedly asked questions about allowing transgender children into single-sex spaces. So this is where we are with it. Instead of the NSPCC holding an event about keeping children safe from abuse, which is rather an important subject, it has to be co-opted by this whole transgender nonsense and i say nonsense in terms of the transgender lobby and the propaganda not nonsense in terms of people who want to transition because they feel they're in their own body but the propaganda to confuse people to make them believe they should transition the constant focus on transgender and fluid gender Users raise concerns about children who identify as female but who are born male sharing changing rooms, shower facilities, and dormitories with other girl guides. Well, it comes down to respect. Yes, people who transition should be respected for that, and people who feel they're in their own body and need to change for their own reasons should be respected and helped through that transition process. But respect goes both ways. If you are someone who just decides that you are now a woman, if you're a man, Without any biological or physical change, then what right does that give you to go into an area where girls and women want to be alone only with other women or with other girls? What right does that give a man to walk in just because he's decided he's now a woman or a boy? they've decided they're now a girl. Other participants asked about the increasing number of children who are deciding to live a different gender while still at school. A staff member posted to say the event had been cancelled because the questions here are so focused on gender identity the feeling is that the NSPCC campaign itself and the NSPCC specific safety messages are unlikely to get much of an airing. No, they're being ignored for this transgender nonsense. Even a meeting about keeping children safe turned into a debate about transgender. In a statement to the site, the NSPCC said it doesn't consider there to be specific child protection concerns in relation to transgender inclusive policies. The spokesman added, transgender young people are at particular risk of physical, sexual and emotional abuse in peers. This can heighten the risk of abuse by adults as children turn online for support and access to networks of those sharing similar views and feelings. There should be high quality statutory relationships and sex education alongside strong school safeguarding policies to ensure that all children are kept safe in schools. The very abuse that that NSPCC meeting was designed to inform people about. The quote goes on. There should be high quality statutory relationships and sex education alongside strong school safeguarding policies to ensure that all children are kept safe in schools. The Girl Guides policy, which emerged last year, says that members are entitled to use the facilities of the gender that they self-identify as. Well, there's implications with that, as I said just now. Mumsnet users have built up a reputation for being particularly focused on transgender issues, and the stance of some members has been described as transphobic. Justine Roberts, Mumsnet founder and CEO, told the Daily Telegraph that the site will always have a great deal of sympathy for vulnerable and oppressed groups, but we are also committed to freedom of speech. That's exactly the right way to go about it. The quote goes on. Sometimes these two principles come into conflict, rarely more so than in the recent debate about what it is acceptable to say or not to say about transgender people and changing opinions about gender and sex. She added that the debate over transgender people's rights attested tested to the absolute limit the site's ability to host civilised discussion. But we fundamentally believe that with a bit of effort all round that we can allow all voices to be heard and that by allowing all sides to be heard we can move towards a constructive compromise, she said. Well, that would be nice, but the idea is not constructive compromise. The idea is that only one version of what transgender is, is expressed, and that's the official politically correct view. And the reason it's the official politically correct view is because political correctness is there to ensure certain questions that need to be asked about, questions that need to be asked about certain subject areas relating to the elite's agenda don't get asked, or if they are, they're attacked in an attempt to stop them being expressed or to intimidate people into silence and transgender and fluid gender, as I've said before, many times are part of the elite's agenda. And that's why any expression of opinion challenging transgender and fluid gender is attacked. That's why transgender is on the list of hate crime subjects. So that hate crime definition can be used to call legitimate question and comment of transgender. A hate crime. That's the idea. And as I said, we are in a situation where we have a political correctness pyramid, which I talk about in episodes 13 and 15, where the smaller the minority, the higher in position they are in the pyramid. Transgender and fluid gender are near the top, and thus the more protection they get. And we're also looking at the progressives. We're also seeing why... The progressives and the PC Brigade are the new establishment, they're the new tyranny while thinking they're challenging the established order. The next subject today is social media and it's a positive story for once. I don't see a lot of that in the media but this is a positive story, this is in the Guardian Logged off, meet the teens who refuse to use social media. Generation Z has grown up online, so why are a surprising number suddenly turning their backs on Instagram, Facebook and Snapchat? For 17-year-old Mary Emanuel from London, it happened in Tesco. For people around the world, that's a supermarket. We were in year 7. That's the first year of secondary school in England. We were in year 7, she remembers, and my friend had made an Instagram account. As we were buying stuff, she was counting the amount of likes she'd got on a post. Oh, forty 40 likes, 42 likes. I just thought, this is ridiculous. Isabel, an 18-year-old student from Bedfordshire who doesn't want to disclose her surname, turned against social media when her classmates became zombified. Everyone switched off from conversation. It became, can I have your number to text you? Something got lost in terms of speaking face-to-face, and I thought, I don't really want to be swept up in that. For 15-year-old Emily Sharp from Staines in Surrey, watching bullying online was the final straw. It wasn't nice. That deterred me from using it. It is widely believed that young people are hopelessly devoted to social media. Teenagers, according to this stereotype, tweet, gram, snap and scroll. But for every young person hunched over a screen, there are others for whom social media no longer holds such an allure. These teens are turning their backs on technology and there are more of them than you might think. While many of us have been engrossed in the Instagram lives of our co-workers and peers, a backlash among young people has been quietly boiling. One 2017 survey of British school children found that 63% would be happy if social media had never been invented. Another survey of 9,000 internet users from the research firm Ampere Analysis found that people aged 18 to 24 had significantly changed their attitudes towards social media in the past two years. Whereas 66% of this demographic agree with the statement, social media is important to me, in 2016, only 57% make this claim in 2018. As young people increasingly reject social media, older generations increasingly embrace it. Among the 45 plus age bracket, the proportion in value of value social media has increased from 23% to 28% in the past year, according to Ampere's data. This is part of a wider trend. According to a study by US marketing firm Hill Holiday of Generation Z, People born after 1995, half of those surveyed stated they quit or were considering quitting at least one social media platform. When it comes to Generation Z's relationship to social media, significant cracks are beginning to show, says the firm's Leslie Bilby. She believes we will definitely see an increase in younger people quitting or substantially reducing their use. And as younger Generation Zers notice this behavior in their older siblings and friends, they too will start to dial down their use of social media, she says. The article goes on. As the first generation to grow up online, Generation Z never had to learn social media, or at least not exactly. They glided through every iteration. Facebook 2004, Twitter 2006, Instagram 2010, Snapchat 2011 in real time, effortlessly adopting each one. But a life lived in pixels from your earliest age is no easy thing. You start doing things that are dishonest, says Emmanuel, who quit social media at age 16. She goes on to say, like Instagram, I was presenting this dishonest version of myself on a platform where most people were presenting dishonest versions of themselves. Like Emmanuel, Jeremiah Johnson, 18, from Luton, grew weary of the pressures of sustaining an online persona. It's a competition of who can appear the happiest. And if you're not happy and want to bet about it on social media, you're attention-seeking, he says. After being bugged by his friends to get Instagram, he has stopped using Facebook age 16, Johnson joined. He lasted six months. If you're having a bad day and scrolling through it, you're constantly bombarded with pictures of people going to parties. Even if that's not an accurate portrayal of their lives, that's what you see. So I stopped using it. It became depressing. It was this competition of who's the happiest. He pauses. Participating in that is not something I'm interested in, he says. Hyperconnected teens have been faced with a surfeit of clicks, retweets and likes and the dopamine rush of online validation since the neural pathways in their brains were formed. They're becoming overwhelmed with the responsibility of maintaining their social sites and with upholding the somewhat inflated persona many have created on these sites, where they are constantly seeking approval via the amount of likes they get for any given post, Bilby says. The people who are the most honest about themselves do not play the game of Instagram, Emmanuel says. He goes on to say, the game of Instagram is who can maximise their likes by being the most risque, outrageous or conformist as possible. I didn't want to play that game. The article goes on, at school, social media can be a brutal barometer of popularity. If you meet someone new and they ask for your Instagram and you only have 80 followers, says Sharp, they're going to think you're not that popular. But if you have 2,000 followers, they're going to be like, you're the most popular person in school. Sharp quit social media at 13. I'd rather not know what other people think of me, he says. A desire to build authentic offline friendships motivated somebody to quit. I'm so much better at real life socializing now, says Emmanuel. Not just those people you accept on a friend request, who are friends of a friend. For Tyreek Morgan, 18, from Bristol. Oh, Bristol. Being a hard man to get hold of, he has no social media presence at all, has its advantages. Everyone goes to other people to find me, Morgan laughs, and when I hear that they've been trying to get hold of me, I say, great, why would I need 500 flaky friends? He says, the article goes on. But when you are from a digitally native generation, quitting social media can feel like joining a monastery. Emmanuel was recently asked by co-workers if she had Snapchat. I said no, and I instantly heard, like, gasps. It was like I'd revealed something disgusting, she says. She explained that she did have a Snapchat handle, but never used it. Relief came out of their eyes. It was really weird, she says. Teenagers not ready to quit entirely are stepping back for a while. Dr. Amanda Lenhart, who researches young people's online lives, conducted a survey of US teenagers asking them about taking time off social media. We found that 58% of teenagers said they had taken at least one break from at least one social media platform. The most common reason? It was getting in the way of schoolwork or jobs, with more than a third of respondents citing this as their primary reason for leaving social media. Other reasons included feeling tired of the conflict or drama they could see unfolding among their peer group online and feeling oppressed too by the constant hose of information," says Dr. Amanda Lenhart. Bill B. agrees that young people are becoming more aware of the amount of time they waste online. Of the young people here on holiday surveyed who had quit or considered quitting social media, did so, she says, in order to use time in more valuable ways. I don't know how people doing their A-level or GCSEs have the time for it, says Isabel. They're constantly studying, but their only distraction is social media, rather than getting sucked into a mindless vortex of never-ending scrolling, as she puts it. When Isabel isn't studying, she prefers to be outdoors. The fact that generations Z have had their every move documented online since before they could walk, talk, or even control their bowels helps explain their activity to social media. It makes sense for them to strive for privacy as soon as they reach the age when they have a choice over their online image. I've seen parents post pictures of their child's first party online as any bins in the University of Central Lancashire. You think, why are you doing this to your child? They wouldn't want this to be public, she says. The article goes on. Generation Z has an interest in privacy that subtly sets them apart. Young people want to get away from the curtain-twitching village where everyone knows everything about you, Binz says. So while today's teens spend a lot of time online, they don't actually share that much personal information, and when they do share, it's strategic. You're painting a picture of who you are and your image, says Binz. It's your own shop window or brand, says Binz. Framing a picture and posting it on there is not a five minute thing, says Emmanuel, explaining that any post will be well thought out in order to project a certain image and maximise likes. It takes hours of deliberation, she says. When social media started, we didn't really know what it was gonna mean. Young people are more aware of the value of privacy than we were 10 years ago, says Binz. Emmanuel says that the Cambridge Analytica story with its exposure of widespread data harvesting helped prompt you to get off social media and many more young people seem to be turning against Facebook. On Tuesday, this was published on the 29th of August. On Tuesday, it was reported that the number of Facebook users aged 18 to 24 in Britain is expected to fall 1.8% this year. Some of the teams I spoke to were concerned about how technologies such as SnapMap and Snapchat feature that tracks your friends geographically in real time were spreading through their schools and mistrustful of the privacy consequences of being surveyed by your followers wherever you go. SnapMap is this big theme with a lot of my friends, but there is a sense of privacy that is being breached as well, Isabel says. Teenagers have also educated about the ramifications of an offensive tweet or explicit picture as well as the health consequences of too much screen time. Young people are being taught in schools about sharing news and how tweets can travel around. They've seen the horror story assessments. Isabel agrees, constant screen time damages your ability to see and it also causes internal damage such as anxiety. Studies have shown that social media can use negatively studies have shown that social media use can negatively affect mental well being and adolescents are particularly susceptible. One national representative survey US 13-18 to year olds link heavier social media use to depression and suicide, particularly in girls, and 41% of the Generation Z teens surveyed by Hill Holiday reported that social media made them feel anxious, sad or depressed. But quitting social media can create new anxieties. Our research shows that the biggest fear of quitting on poisoning social media is missing out, Bilby says. Some are more sanguine than others. Do I miss out on stuff? Morgan asks. Yeah, of course, people find it hard to keep in contact with me. They say it would be easier if you had this or that, but I don't think it's that hard to type in my number and send a text. You're just not willing to do it. The article goes on. Others struggle with the fear of missing out. It's like everyone in your friend group has gone to a party without telling you, Johnson says. At times he questions himself. I second-guess myself a lot. There are some days I'm really convinced I want to reinstall it, not for myself, but because I want to appear normal. Article goes on. Still refusing Nicks such as Johnson may not be outliers forever. In a world in which everyone is online, renouncing social media is a renegade countercultural move. It's quietly punk as shaving your head or fastening your clothes with safety pins. Morgan has become a spangali of a classmates wanting to escape. My friends come to me and say, Tyreek, I don't have social media anymore. And I go, Why? I thought that's what you guys do. And they say, Thanks to you. Because of the things you said and the stuff you're doing. It's quite cool. The article goes on. Quitting social media is a determined move. Apps including Facebook and Instagram are designed to be addictive. Well, I've said before that I've no doubt that a lot of these apps that people get addicted to are made to be addictive. Not only because the people who make the apps want people to download them, but because they're designed to be addictive to get young people addicted because of the transhuman agenda. Anyway, it goes on. Social media is so ingrained in teenage culture that it's hard to take it out, but when you do it's such a relief, Emmanuel says. She has received a lot of admiration from her peers for quitting. They wish they were able to log off. People feel like social media is a part of them and their identities as teenagers and something you need to do, she says. But I'm no less of a teenager because I don't use it. Well, it's very encouraging that we're seeing this turn away from the constant focus on technology of the young. And the way I see it, I don't see anything wrong with using technology or social media. The problem I have is the addiction to technology and where that addiction is designed to end which is the transhuman agenda, which I talk about in episode 11. But it's very encouraging that at least some young people are turning away from that and seeing this addiction for what it is. Less and less nowadays do you see kids being kids in the way they used to, where kids would go out and play. I grew up in that way. Virtually every day I was out playing and one of the advantages of that was it gave me perspective. I was able to see the difference between what I did with the people I was out with, my best mate and other people, and what other kids and young people were doing. Which was either standing outside their house talking or on their phones. That was a bit later on because when I started playing out, there were no mobile phones and certainly no smartphones, no tablets, etc. So either kids would be standing outside their house or at school, like secondary school, you'd see the kids who did drugs and stuff and you'd see kids in gangs causing trouble. And being outside of all that, I saw the difference and that's the best way to learn. You don't have to be told not to do certain things. If you have a friend or group of friends who you could just be kids with, you don't do any of that, then you'll see the difference by definition and if you're constantly focused on technology then you're never going to get that perspective. Also, I was fortunate in that I was out playing in the days when parents didn't feel the need to protect their child from everything and kids could go out playing on their own and the group of us that went out, it was always different people but there was me, my best mate, his brother, we were always there but the group of us that went out each time would walk for miles sometimes before or in between the actual playing and you could. Do that then, and it prepares you for being outside. Walking the streets on your own, and it helps to make you streetwise. Didn't with me, because I'm hopeless with directions, but (laughs) it does help most people. And there's a great episode of Black Mirror called Archangel. Black Mirror series four, Archangel, that looks at what can happen if you wrap kids in cotton wool too much and take too much control over their... Take too and take too much control over what should be their own time. Anyway, going back to the point of what I was just saying, what you can learn from being a kid. What are you going to learn sat at home all day staring at a screen? Another aspect of this is communication. I know the idea is that technology is supposed to make communication easier. But a message on a phone or a tablet or even a computer is open to interpretation. Whereas when you're talking in person, then you know exactly how the words were said, the facial expressions, etc. And you can't be learning from people, from experience. That's how you grow. You can't underestimate the value of a good influence. There are three types of friends in life, a good influence, a neutral influence, and a bad influence. The best thing you can achieve in life is to find friends who teach you what having a good influence means. And you can't influence someone over technology. You can't grow from experience with a good influence if instead you're constantly focusing on technology. There's also the effect of the addiction to technology on the brain and I've mentioned before in episode 21 about Professor Susan Greenfield and her research into how technology addiction is changing the brain and creating a generation of kids and young people dramatically different in this sense from previous generations. And it's all part of laying the groundwork for the transhuman agenda, but it's also another means of dumbing down kids and young people, which I talked about earlier, and creating a generation far less likely to question the world around them and see what's going on, let alone care about it. It's about distraction. To create the world the elite agenda demands, then people have to be kept divided and diverted. And technology does not, as is claimed, bring people closer together. Yes, in certain circumstances, when people are catching up with someone on the other side of the world, for example, I can understand that technology can be a great tool in that communication, in that situation. Yes, but I'm not talking about long distance communication. I'm talking about kids and young people in general here. It doesn't bring people closer together. It keeps people divided from each other and apart because they're constantly focused on technology. They're not interacting with each other face to face. You'll see kids, people in general come to that, but kids sat next to each other on their phones, not talking. It's about keeping people distracted, divided and diverted. So people don't see what's happening. So what's happening continues unchallenged. The final subject this week is air pollution. This is in The Guardian. Air pollution causes huge reduction in intelligence, study reveals. Air pollution causes a huge reduction in intelligence, according to new research, indicating that the damage to society of toxic air is far deeper than the well-known impacts of physical health. The research was conducted in China, but is relevant across the world, with 95% of the global population breathing unsafe air. It found that high pollution levels led to significant drops in test scores in language and arithmetic, with the average impact equivalent to having lost a year of the person's education. Polluted air can cause everyone to reduce their level of education by one year, which is huge. Well, if the education system was what we're told it is, maybe. Anyway, the article goes on. Polluted egg can cause everyone to produce that level of education by one year, which is huge. Said Zhe Chen at Yale School of Public Health in the US, a member of the research team. Well, if education, as in the education system, was what we're told it is, then maybe. But anyway, the quote goes on. But we know the effect is worse for the elderly, especially those over 64, and for men, and for those with low education. If we calculate the loss for those, it may be a few years of education." The article goes on. Previous research has found that air pollution harms cognitive performance in students, but this is the first to examine people of all ages and the difference between men and women. The damage in intelligence was worse for those over 64 years old, with serious consequences, said Shin. We usually make the most critical financial decisions in old age. Rebecca Daniels from the UK public health charity Medact said this report's findings are extremely worrying. The article goes on. Air pollution causes 7 million premature deaths a year, but the harm to people's mental abilities is less well known. A recent study found toxic air was linked to extremely high mortality in people with mental disorders. An earlier work linked it to, to increased mental illness in children, while another analysis found those living near busy roads had an increased risk of dementia. The new work, published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, analyzed language and arithmetic tests conducted as part of the China Family Panel studies on 20,000 people across the nation between 2010 and 2014, the scientists compared the test results with records of nitrogen dioxide and sulfur dioxide pollution. They found the longer people were exposed to dirty air, the bigger the damage to intelligence, with language ability more harm than mathematical ability, and men more harm than women. The researchers said this may result from differences in how male and female brains work. Derek Hill with the Hong Kong Polytechnic University said the impact of air pollution on cognition was important, and his group had similar preliminary findings in their work. It is because high air pollution can potentially be associated with oxidative stress, neuroinflammation, and neurodegeneration of humans, he said. Schoen said air pollution was most likely to be the cause of the loss of intelligence rather than simply being a correlation. The study followed the same individuals as air pollution varied from one year to the next, meaning that many other possible causal factors such as genetic differences are automatically accounted for. Scientists also accounted for the gradual decline in cognition seen as people age and ruled out people being more impatient or uncooperative during tests when pollution was high. Air pollution was seen to have a short-term impact on intelligence as well, and Shen said this could have important consequences, for example, for students who have to take crucial entrance exams on polluted days. But there is no shortcut to solve this issue, we said. Governments really need to take concrete measures to reduce air pollution. That may benefit human capital, which is one of the most important driving forces of economic growth. The article goes on. In China, air pollution is declining but remains three times above World Health Organization limits. According to the World Health Organization, 20 of the world's most polluted cities are in developing countries. China, home to several of those cities, has been engaged in a war against pollution for the past five years. The results would apply around the world, Shen added. The damage to intelligence was likely to be incrementally said, with a one milligram rise in pollution over three years equivalent to losing more than a month of education. Small pollution particles are known to be especially damaging, this is the same wherever you live, as human beings we have more in common than is different. Arash Saleh, a registrar in respiratory medicine in the UK and part of the Doctors Against Diesel campaign, said this study has the concerning bank of evidence showing that exposure to air pollution can worsen our cognitive function. Road traffic is the biggest contributor to air pollution in residential areas and the government needs to act urgently to remove heavy polluting vehicles from our roads. Well, I agree with cutting down on pollution, of course, but the claim removing heavy vehicles from our roads could be taken in two ways. Redesigning vehicles so they don't pollute as much, or removing vehicles from roads, which is the agenda, because the agenda wants high-speed rail travel and corporate to public transport to be the method of transport. The elite want an end of cars, except them, because if you get rid of private transport and move to only public transport, then you can dictate who has access to travel and who doesn't, which is why they want it. This is the Hunger Games Society, with sectors fenced off from each other and high-speed rail travel being the means of travel between them, if you had permission to travel between them. The article, the article goes on. Daniel said, The UK's air is legally polluted and is harming people's health every day. Current policies are not up to the scale of the challenge. Government must commit to bringing air pollution below legal limits as soon as possible. And there is another article here on the same subject. This is actually from the previous week. This is also from the Guardian. City mayors make joint call for urgent action to tackle UK air pollution. City leaders across England and Wales have teamed up to demand that Theresa May take immediate action to fight air pollution, which scientists say causes at least 40,000 premature deaths a year in the UK. A total of 17 mayors and civic leaders, representing 20 million people throughout the country, have signed a letter to for a national action plan to clean up the nation's air to be implemented as a matter of urgency. They include the london mayor sadiq khan as well as mayors andy burnham greater manchester steve rotherham liverpool city regent and dan jarvis sheffield along with leaders from authorities around the country including cardiff leeds newcastle and southampton our country's polluted air is shortening lives damaging our children's lives and severely impacting on the nhs as well as costing the economy and working days lost they say they go on to say crucially these consequences disproportionately affect the poorest and most vulnerable the group is demanding that the government pass a stringent Clean Air Act that will give local authorities powers to regulate emissions such as those produced by taxes and private hire services in cities. Set up a targeted vehicle renewal scheme to replace older, more polluting cars, buses and large in a way that will protect local businesses. Provide funds to support the establishment of clean air zones and provide investment in cleaner buses, taxes and other forms of transport. The letter, also sent to the Chancellor Philip Hammond and the Environment Secretary Michael Gove, was written in the wake of the National Clean Air Summit in June, where many civic leaders met to debate the air pollution crisis. The event was jointly hosted by the Mayor of London, the UK 100 Cities Network and the Institute for Public Policy Research. Our most deprived communities, who already have to cope with multiple health problems, suffer most from the effects of polluted air, said Rotherham. In Liverpool, we have areas where men have a life expectancy seven years lower than the national average. There is only so much that we can do as an individual area, which is why we need a national plan for clean air. This view was backed by Bristol's mayor, Marvin Rees. It is unacceptable that lives are at risk, he said. He goes on to say, we need the government to show leadership with a way to support low income, vulnerable families and small businesses who rely on diesel vehicles to be able to shift to cleaner cars. Well, if the focus on climate change was focused on real environmental problems like this, deforestation, fracking and others, then we'd have a much cleaner, healthier and less irradiated environment and atmosphere. But then that won't do when there's an agenda to destroy the environment, get people off the land and pollute and irradiate the atmosphere. Not just for depopulation, but also to literally change our atmosphere, change our world into a world humans are not capable of living in without being genetically modified. And this is what GM Food is doing. Genetically modified food is there to genetically modify us as I explained in episode 26. This is what radiation is doing from technology, this is what the whole focus on synthetic human is about, the creation of a synthetic human form. They're now creating synthetic skin cells, synthetic blood, synthetic DNA, which they call GNA or PNA, and this ties into the transgender or fluid gender agenda, because the main reason for that is to get people to become a gender that does not procreate, thus making them more open to being a synthetic form, and this ties into the transhumanism agenda, which is where it's all planned to lead in the end. The agenda is that a vast amount of humanity is wiped out, either collectively in certain areas through war and conflict, or individually through the combination of radiation in the atmosphere, polluted environment, toxicity all around us, chemicals, crap in food and drink, pharmaceutical medicine, as I talk about in episode 17, and those left alive are living in the smart cities in the Hunger Games society and are converted to a synthetic, part-technological form and connected to the transhuman cloud or smart grid by artificial intelligence which will run everything including the human mind in terms of the air pollution's effect in reducing intelligence well that's exactly what the elite want this is where the crappy food and drink comes in this is where cheap entertainment comes in doesn't mean the people making the programs know that but this is why we're given that this is where the dumbing down of the education system comes in it's all about keeping human intelligence at a level where people are as least likely as possible to see what's going on Also, air pollution, as the second article talks about, plays into the depopulation agenda and all these benefits for the elite and their agenda. Or why these things are allowed to continue and they're not sorted sooner unless enough pressure is put on those in power because these things are desired because of their benefit to the agenda, because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven or even money-driven. That's another misunderstanding because, yes, money is a factor on one level, of course it is, but it's not about money ultimately and it's certainly not about what's right for people. So what is it? It's this agenda that I've been researching and communicating information about for the last 10 years. This is where the mainstream media misses the point. They look at news stories in isolation and without the context of the elite agenda for the world because they don't know the agenda exists, never mind what it is. Higher up in the hierarchy of these media organisations they'll know where the shop floor level journalists won't have a clue. And that's why pay-per-view exists to provide the context and connections to see the bigger picture of world events. So, that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view, more to come next week. Until then, goodbye.